Hello, and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we have part two of our conversation with Dr. Kristen Neff. In our first episode with Dr. Neff, we discussed the fundamentals of self-compassion, what defines it, and how we can grow it in the course of our everyday life. Today, I'm going to be offering a few more questions about self-compassion, and we're going to delve a bit more deeply into the material itself. So at the close of our last episode, you mentioned that mindfulness was really a key part of self-compassion. A lot of your work on self-compassion, at least in, in my reading of it, comes back to mindfulness practices of one kind or another. Yeah. In order to practice self-compassion effectively, we have to be both aware of our suffering yeah. on some level and aware of when we're not being self-compassionate yeah. on yeah. some level. It, it's very challenging to do these practices without some awareness of those two things. Yeah. And we've spoken a lot on this podcast about the value of mindfulness. Yes. And this is another very clear way mm-hmm. where mindfulness is an incredibly valuable, I'm going to use the word skill, even though I'm not entirely sure that that's the correct word. Yeah. But let's call it a skill. Yeah, I'll call, I'll call it a skill. Yeah. Yeah, close enough, right? And, you know, fully support cultivating an effective mindfulness practice and all that good stuff. But I've been kind of musing on something recently. And it's the question of can we be too mindful? To put it another kind of way, it's great to be mindful in a vacuum, but I can imagine scenarios, particularly around mindfulness of some kind of traumatic experience, where I really don't want to be very mindful in that moment. Taken to an extreme example, I don't want to be particularly mindful when somebody's operating on me or something like that. So Mm -hmm. are there situations where we need more than mindfulness? And what are the things that we have to have alongside mindfulness in order to bring compassion to our pain? Because if we're just mindful of our pain, wow, that seems like it would be a pretty unpleasant experience for somebody. Yeah, you know, no, absolutely. Although I think you're still being mindful. I think you're just directing Mm. your mindfulness elsewhere. Mm Mm-hmm. And so wisdom is absolutely needed. So I'll give you an example. (laughs) I actually have something called temporal lobe epilepsy, which is I get little seizures in my brain where I start having this intense deja vu. And it's if it it really goes, you know, lead to memory loss, you know, Dory's under control, it's fine. But when it it first started happening, I didn't realize I had temporal lobe epilepsy. I thought it was just having these intense deja vu experiences. And it Mm. was when I was practicing a lot of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And so it actually happened. I had a big episode. I was I was in a Sherlock Holmes movie of all things, and I thought, okay, I'll just use my mindfulness. I'll just be with it. I won't resist it. I'll just you know allow this experience to happen, and I'll try not to judge it. Have equanimity with it. And I had an episode that lasted over half an hour. Wow! A major memory loss afterward, and I realized that actually that was the exact wrong thing to do. You do not want to be mm. mindful of a temporal epilepsy episode or a flashback or traumatic memory or when you're being operated on. And so now what I do, I'm still using mindfulness, but now what I do is I'm very sensitive to like the beginnings if it starts to happen. So I'm aware. So that's the mindfulness helps me be aware. Okay. I call them twinges. This may happen. Mm. And I direct all my attention in my right big toe, very one-pointed attention. Mm. It's far away from my brain as I can possibly get, it's still mindfulness. I'm still using the power of attention to focus on something else and, you know, the power and, and, and it really, really helps. But I'm, I'm choosing what to be mindful of. So the thing is, you know, mindfulness doesn't mean you're just aware of anything that's happening. You can choose to focus on something else. So for instance, in our compassion training program, we have something called 
mindful closing. In other words, mm. when you feel that something you're doing a practice and it's kind of too intense for you, you're getting traumatic flashbacks or a lot of the pain comes up, we say close down, distract yourself, mm. do something else, but do it in a mindful way. Because if you're aware that, okay, this is too much, I'm going to focus on something else, you're still being mindful, you're still being conscious, I'm doing it because actually what I need in the moment is to focus on something else, you're actually still practicing mindfulness and self-compassion. You're still giving yourself what you need in that moment. Because what you need mm. is not to be doing the practice because the practice is too activating. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a wonderful technique that you're describing here. You're directing your mindfulness in a wise yeah. way as opposed to the kind of stupid mindfulness, which is just whatever, yeah, it's fine, you know, it's not all fine, <laughs> you know. No, that's a great point. And it's a very specific response yeah. to the kind of critique that I'm offering here yeah. or the, I, I think, reasonable kind of point around, wow, there are some really some situations where mindfulness alone is not enough. Yeah. But I think you need some degree of awareness to use wisdom and we need wisdom mm-hmm. to decide what we need. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't say you aren't being mindful. You're just using the mindfulness in a different way. I think sometimes I mean, Rick knows this. You could get into a huge argument about what's the difference between mindfulness, wisdom, and compassion. Mm, And mm -hmm. at some level, we're all just pointing to the moon. There's some sort of bigger state that we kind of know what it is, and we don't want to get too bogged down in words. But we need all of it. We need wisdom, mindfulness, awareness, consciousness, love to really help alleviate suffering, if that's our goal, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. And to kind of continue my my investigation into, <laughs> into my, not really critiques, but kind of pseudo-questions around this, this question of self-compassion. Yeah. Certainly for me, and I think for many people who, young men raised inside of a Western culture, mm-hmm. you're taught from a relatively young age by society, thankfully not so much in my household, because I had a very unique upbringing, but I would say <laughs> yeah. in, in most households, that kind of compassion and similar sort of softening emotions Mm -hmm. are inherently quote-unquote weak or they're undesirable or they make you Mm -hmm. a wimp in some way or another. So I'm just wondering if you find that there's a gender bias in the material and self-compassion and in the receptivity of each gender to that material. To kind of put it another way, Mm -hmm. if you're working with somebody who is raised inside of that very traditional ideology where compassion is weak and you want to be strong and have a step upper lip and all of that good stuff, how do you help them realize the value of these practices while also kind of loosening their grip a little bit on some of those older limiting beliefs that they might have? Yeah. So for instance, it's absolutely true that it's more difficult for men to get through the door. Any of my workshops are typically about 80 to 85% women, Mm, right? It's a barrier for men to get through the door. But I have to say, women also have barriers to self-compassion. They don't stop them from getting through the door, but for men, the the gender role barrier is going to be weak. For women, is it's selfish. Aren't they supposed to be? Because women are taught to kind of meet other people's needs, to be mothers, nurturers. Isn't it selfish to, to give it to myself? That's another barrier. And the way that I've, I've addressed it lately, kind of my, the next phase of my work, which I'm my, my next book, and I'm really excited about it. And Chris and I have been talking about, there's both a yin and a yang element to self-compassion, right? So Yin and yang comes from Chinese philosophy. It's, I'm just using this in a general sense. I'm not an expert, but the idea is that yin is kind of more this soft, nurturing energy. Yin, yin self-compassion is when we're with ourselves in a tender way. 
we kind of accept ourselves, we care for ourselves, we comfort ourselves, we soothe ourselves. This is really the healing power of self-compassion where we can again hold our pain in this tender way. But there's also the alleviation of suffering often requires action. Mm. A firefighter who jumps into a burning building to pull the people out so they don't get engulfed in flames, that is an incredibly compassionate act, but it takes action and it takes bravery. Or a parent who works three jobs to put food on their table for their kids, that's an act of compassion, but it takes a lot of action. And also motivating change. I mean, it's not compassionate if you just kind of let these harmful behaviors stay because you know it's you kind of you don't want to accept the fact that whatever your behavior is whether it's you know self-harm or overeating or what any behavior that's harming you you don't want to just accept the behavior you want to accept yourself you want to change the behavior if it's causing harm to you or others so it's kind of it has a motivating element so chris and i talk about yin self-compassion the purpose is to you know to be with ourselves to comfort to soothe to validate our pain it's being with ourselves yang self-compassion is taking action you know protecting ourselves providing for ourselves motivating change and if you look at the research literature you'll see that self-compassion does both for instance People who are more self-compassionate, they're much more able to cope with adversity, whether it's combat veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan, having more self-compassion makes them less likely to develop PTSD, right? Or people dealing with Mm -hmm. cancer, going through a divorce. Basically, when life gets tough, the self-compassionate get going, (laughs) right? So it's it's kind of a misconception about what self-compassion is. And you know, I'm really interested in how this plays out in terms of gender, because a lot of people, the, the kind of prototype of self-compassion is, you know, the mother, the kind of nurturing, caring for the child. You know, fathers can do it too, but it's kind of that nurturing stereotype. But the other metaphor that I think is really relevant is mama and bear. You know, if you if you threaten mama bear's cubs, watch out, she'll rip your head off. The female archetype of collie is very incredibly powerful goddess who will be very, very fierce in protecting people from harm, doing what needs to be done to basically make sure things are okay. That's also part of the feminine gender role. And so I'm actually arguing my next book is going to be about how women need to own their mama bear. They need to be allow themselves mm. to be angry as long as the anger is directed at harm and not at people. You know, social mm. justice Look, look at Martin Luther King. You know, these people, that's, they used fierce compassion, this idea that we need to stand up to injustice, but with love in our hearts. So I'm, I'm hoping pretty soon this idea of yang self-compassion will actually out, also get out there in the populace. It's not there yet, but I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure it does get there because I think it's really useful to remember. These are two flip sides of love, and it's not just, it's not just the soft, cuddly stuff. Right, I'm. I'm really interested, Kristen, in in how this uh, Yang uh, or or Yang compassion, if you will. Yeah, I know. I'm saying is, is it Yang? I just I just can't say it as Yang, but I've heard it as Yang, and I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to claim either way because I don't speak Chinese in any language. Anyway, so point is, you've described two uses of it. One is yeah. sort of internally directed, in yes. which we're encouraging of ourselves, yes. sometimes firm with ourselves. You know, For mm-hmm. example, if you're really compassionate to yourself, you might stop yourself from doing something that's bad for you, even yes. if it's momentarily pleasurable. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And then you're describing the mama bear, who yeah. is being passionate, fiery, firm, et cetera, toward others. All right. Yeah. So 
How can people, well, actually, let me prelude here. One thing that I've been struck by is how self-directed compassion actually increases other directed compassion. Right. In part to that pathway that you've named of the sense of common humanity. So that's really good. And I want to name that now that I get to my question. Uh How can a person tap into the useful power of mama bear compassion or yang or yang compassion while asserting oneself with others Mm -hmm. in a way that doesn't tip into harm? It's an interesting question. And I wish I could say I had it all worked out. I don't. That's what your next book's about, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, I put it this way. I know it needs to be done, and I know love has to be in there. And by the way, I, I'm someone, I get it wrong a lot. Like, I have a side of my personality I call the bulldog, because I have yeah. a lot of yang, you know? And sometimes yeah. when, I'm, when I'm fired up about something, I'm not thinking so much about, is this going to harm the other person? And this is like, I think a lot of people, but also especially women, have this, it's hard to get it right. It's like either one or the other. Mm. So when I'm spending a lot of time learning how to integrate, the yin and the yang have to always both be there. So I'm actually working on developing practices. So for instance, when that fierce mama bear energy is arising, and you can feel it actually as an energy rising up in your spine. One of the problems, especially for women, is because we aren't allowed to be angry. We immediately think, oh, I can't feel this. This is bad for me to feel this. I need to get rid of it. I need to do something else. And then we suppress it. And then when we aren't looking, it like jumps out. Mm -hmm. And so what I've been trying to do is allowing myself, first of all, to honor that energy to not think, oh, this is Kristen. I'm being, you know, there's not the B words of the, you know, that come to mind that women get called when they have that fierce energy. So really honoring it. And valuing it and letting it flow with my body, allowing the actually physical energy to flow without constraint or judgment. But then I try to bring in the end. So I, I put like my hands on my heart, not to make the anger go away, but just to kind of integrate that energy in. So I'm, I'm feeling the fierceness and yet I'm also making sure I feel the love. And to me, the key seems to be remembering that that energy always needs to be aimed at protection. If it's aimed at the person, then it's, it can become hostility. Mm-hmm. So you are bad because you are doing this thing. I mean, look at our political situation. It's very easy to get caught up in people and being angry at people. But really, if we focus on harm being done, remembering that all people are, are human beings, then I think, it, it, and again, this is, this is what, the great leaders like Martin Luther King or Gandhi talked about that if your eye is on the prize, which is the alleviation of suffering, and, and that's why I think it's helpful to frame it as compassion mm. because we intuitively think of compassion as the alleviation of suffering. So mm-hmm. I think anger can be a useful force for compassion if it's handled in the right way. Mm-hmm. But it is tricky, and I would like to say I have it all figured out. I don't. But I do think there's something there, especially for women. But, you know, men, the, the exact converse is true for men, right? Men are allowed to be angry. It's actually kind of getting kudos for being angry. But you aren't allowed to be tender. Mm-hmm. That can also make things pear-shaped as well. So I think everyone, all human beings, need to have both energies. We need to celebrate both energies. And we need to find a way to integrate them so they aren't cut off from each other. So hopefully, and then, then of course, we need the wisdom to how to, how to apply these energies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that piece of advice that you gave, 
there about focusing on the harm being done yes. rather than the individual yeah. is a really wonderful piece of advice, not just for the application of self-compassion, but really for being a functional human in the world that we live in. So yeah. I would just like to flag that one as a, as a very critical piece. Yeah. So as we come to the end of our time together, I would just like to ask you for one final question, which we ask most of our guests on the podcast. And inside all of this learning that you've done, obviously you've done an enormous amount of research, you've talked to a lot of interesting people, and you've grown as a human over time through your life. So if you had the opportunity to go back and talk to yourself as a child or a young adult, what's something that you would want to say to that person? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, if I had had my self-compassion practice before adolescence, you know, could you imagine? Yeah, just really this idea that you can really support yourself. I, I've been through some pretty difficult things. And just knowing that there is this compassionate presence that you can call on um, whenever you need it. And a lot of people do have that through actually their spiritual practice, calling in mm. on a compassionate practice. And so it's not in place of that. I think it's in combination with that. But knowing that this compassionate presence is also within you, right? And that you can call on it whenever you need it and that it is very strong and it can really help when things are difficult. I think it would have helped me get through my adolescent years <laughs> with a little less pain and a little less makeup as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that that kind of a practice would help most people who are going through that stage of their life so that that's really, again, a wonderful piece of advice. So we've come to the end of our time here, Kristen. But again, thank you so much for doing this. It was really wonderful to have you on the podcast. And I think you shared some truly wonderful information with people. Thank you. Thank you. Nice talking to you both. To offer a quick recap, today we closed our conversation with Dr. Kristen Neff on the subject of self-compassion. I began by asking if it was possible to be too mindful in the application of self-compassion and if there were times where we really made sense to ratchet down our mindfulness of our own suffering. Dr. Neff gave a great piece of advice where she has a little mindfulness practice where sometimes when she's really flooded by negative feelings, when she's really feeling something that she doesn't want to fully experience, she'll actually retain her mindfulness, but be totally mindful of something completely distant from her own experience. The example she gave was putting all of her attention into her big toe. We then moved on to some of the gender differences that can be seen in self-compassion, particularly given how self-compassion has traditionally been viewed as kind of fundamentally unmasculine and how people raised in a very traditional gender environment are sometimes taught that self-compassion of various forms can be a show of weakness, that if you're compassionate to yourself, you're actually just kind of a wimp. And Dr. Neff explained how she helps work with people who have been raised inside of those environments and who might be holding on to some of those underlying feelings. She then went on to distinguish between what she called a yin self-compassion, that nurturing, caring, internalized, quote-unquote, soft form of self-compassion, from yang self-compassion, the more protective form of self-compassion that really helps us engage into action out in the world. Dr. Hansen asked how self-compassion can actually motivate us into action. And Kristen gave the great example of a firefighter running into a burning building to save somebody inside of it. It's both an incredibly compassionate act and one that requires absolutely decisive action from the firefighter. I then closed by asking what Kristen would say to a younger version of herself, and she pointed to the value of self-compassion 
for people who are currently undergoing a developmental process and how, frankly, most of us in high school or middle school or elementary school, whatever it might be, are truly not very kind to ourselves. And the environment might not be very kind to us either. So it becomes actually additionally valuable to have a really profound practice of self-compassion at that point in time. So that's it for today's episode. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would leave a comment, leave a rating, and subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, tell a friend about it, it really does help us out. So until next time, thanks for listening.